Once connected, always connected. Be the best you can be. And think about what you might be able to do today to understand the other better. The world has never been changing more rapidly, dislocating the ways we work, learn, and live. On the Learning Future podcast, we discuss the knowledge, skills, and dispositions we all need for our learning future, exploring insights with world-class educators, researchers, policymakers, and leaders from across industries and across the world. Hi, and welcome to the Learning Future podcast. I'm your host, Luca Parry, and today we are speaking with Peter Mustafiriadis. Peter is an internationally recognized thought leader of culture as a driver of peace and innovation. He's the founder of Culture Infusion, and before that had an extensive career in the arts as a creative director, producer, artistic director, musical director, composer, and always a champion of intercultural dialogue. He has produced major intercultural productions for the United Nations, the Parliamentary of World Religions, and the United Religions Initiative. And his latest initiative is Diversity Atlas, which provides deep insights into organizational workforces that can unlock the potential of diversity. Peter, it's a delight to be speaking with you. Good morning, Luca, and I'm so excited about today. I know we've been trying to have this meeting for some time now, but you know, so many things have come up. Oh, it's the modern world. Absolutely. Well, let's start with something uh, you've learnt recently. What's something that's been, yeah, that's been a new discovery for you? The, 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 when someone asks me that question, what have you learned recently? I'm thinking, well, I don't know because there's so much that I'm learning. So I think from all that learning that I do on a daily basis, every single moment of the day, I begin to learn that um, the more I learn, the more I'm drawn to this concept of nothingness, <laughs> which is which is a beautiful it's yeah. it's a beautiful way of approaching learning because it provides you with a sense of humility, yeah, and allows you just just to respect the environment that you're operating in and the way you interact with other human beings. Mm, Peter, that's a beautifully profound way to start. You know, because the, you know a little bit of knowledge is, can be very dangerous, of course, and the idea is. We look at things like the Dunning-Kruger effect. Um, you know, it's actually the more that we learn, the more humble we become. Uh, and and of course, one of our one of our ancestors, Hellenic ancestors, you know, said <laughs> that, didn't he? So we won't have to mention whose name. Malista, <laughs> um, Peter, tell us, take us into the world in which you work, and you know, you've been doing lots of international work for a really significant period of time. You see, with UNESCO and other large intergovernmental organizations. What's the big idea that you've been focusing on? I mean, there's many ideas that I'm working on, but I think the big idea is how, what is going to be required for humanity to undergo what I would almost describe as an evolutionary shift in thinking that's going to improve relations between human beings. Mm. I think that's the big idea that I've been working on. I mean, if you think of conflict and the cost of conflict across the globe every year, it equates to something like, according to the Global Peace Index, which was developed here, incidentally, in Australia by an Australian philanthropist, Stephen Killerley, the cost of conflict equates to around 13 to 14% of the global GDP. Wow. Now, in terms of dollars... I mean, that's a lot of money. Mm. 
Now, according to UNESCO, according to the United Nations, 75% of all that conflict that we have has a cultural dimension. Wow. So we're talking $10 trillion a year. I mean, I can't comprehend that number. Yeah. $10 trillion. It's a pretty big number when you look at it mm. on paper. So why isn't the focus, why isn't humanity, why isn't every single nation on earth coming together to go, wow, this is what conflict is costing us. Mm. So what are we doing about it? And, you know, you and I both work in the education space. For me, it's all about education, education in the broad sense. But when I'm talking about culture here, I'm not just talking about, I'm not talking about the arts. I'm talking about, you know, the broad understanding of culture, yeah. you know, way of life, how we relate to each other, mm. you know, shared values, traditions, you know, and in particular, someone's ethnolinguistic background because we know that someone's ethnolinguistic background shapes cognitive processes, shapes empathetic responses. And when we start to approach conversations, Almost invariably, it's done from an ethnocentric perspective, which mm. starts to set things up from the wrong foot. Mm. So I think that's the, that's the big idea that I'm working with. And, um, you know, I developed Diversity Atlas and initially it started off as this sort of little education tool that we were going to develop, like a mm. map for schools. And my CTO came to me and he said, Pete, you always talk about cultural diversity and the benefits that it can bring, you know, to, to organisations. I'm a metrics person. I want to understand what that looks like in terms of numbers. And, you know, Reza, who worked for me, went to school for geniuses. So it was really, you know, across uh, algorithms and mathematical formulas. And he said, we can develop a formula for this. Wow. if we understand the metrics of it. So that's been one of the big things that I'm working on that hopefully can feed into this bigger idea. Wow. Pete, it really is, it's kind of the big idea, isn't it? We're talking really at the level of, of kind of humanity here, of kind of collective consciousness, <laughs> of awareness of like why, you know, how do we live peacefully and sustainably uh, on this planet together? And so, I mean, there's so many threads I, I'd love to pull here. But to start, firstly, what is the, you know, you, we've made, you've made the economic case for, you know, intercultural understanding and compassion and empathy. Um, what's the social case um, beyond just the economics of the cost of conflict? I mean, because, of course, there's the human cost, which is suffering and profound amounts of it all over the world. Uh, and really, I, I mean, I agree so strongly with you that education as so many great social change agents have spoken about, can be the key thing, the base plate, you know, the way that we can change the world for the better. Uh, but, of course, it's not just any education. What type of education needs to be required? Um, so what's the case? You know, what's missing right now? Yeah, why, are we yeah. in this, why are we in this place? Yeah, so, so, so I'm looking, uh, I've got three children now. Uh, one's just completed um, secondary school, one's in year 12, and my youngest is in year eight. And I'm thinking what has changed in education in the last, you know, um, you know, three, four decades when I was at school? And I don't think much has changed. There's been attempts to create a shift. Yeah. But really, we need to be educating the heart. We need to be educating not only the mind, but so much of our education is tied up in these sort of 18th, 19th century 
uh, approach which, which came out of the industrial revolution and had a focus on you know maths and science but there's been to date i, I don't know of a, a system out there an education program out there here in australia which is going okay how can we start to develop uh, uh and teach students the competency of how to relate to another human being yeah you know and and i know our australian curriculum is making progress in this area, they've identified intercultural understanding as one of the um, uh, major competencies, which will sit alongside numeracy, literacy, um, critical thinking, ICT capability, uh, and I think I've maybe left one out. Personal ethical. and social capability. Yeah, yeah. yeah, personal and social capability. But but what does that look like in the in the context of a classroom? And I think we we almost need to get to the point where we're bringing together a whole lot of educators that start to create all these scenarios and go, okay, we can develop a curriculum for this and a pedagogy to accompany that curriculum that goes from, you know, pre, preschool or, you know, uh, K all the way to year 12. And, and, it, and, it, and, it's, and it becomes equal to maths, you know, uh, literacy and all these other competencies. Because why... For, for the simple reason that which I mentioned earlier on, the problems that we have in every organisation, and I see this in every, you see this in even within your own home, but every single organisation in the community, all the problems that we have is one human relating to another. Yeah, it's that simple really, isn't it? It's that simple really? and that complex. Really? You and I, it's so simple, but why, <laughs> why hasn't anyone made the effort? And, and, and yeah. this is what I'm, I'm coming to terms with. But but I think it's a bit more complex at the end of the day because how do you start to put this together mm. that uh, allows for diverse approaches, diverse perspectives, and recognises that everyone comes to the discussion, comes to a setting with a different lens. Mm. That is the challenge here. And, and I come back to Diversity Atlas because, for me, this is what I want to give to humanity. We have the largest repository of data uh, around speech communities, languages, um, uh, ethnicities, ancestral cultures, geocultures, religions. We have something like 42,000 categories that people wow. can select. It's enormous. So if you think of the, the, the world today, we have 193 uh, full member states, according to the United Nations, two non-member states, um, you know, uh, which is uh, uh, Palestine and the Holy See. Then we have what they call all these dependent territories or overseas territories which are attached to, to nations such as Guam or Christmas Island belongs to Australia or the Cook Islands, you know, affiliated to New Zealand. There's about 45 of those. But then you have another 8,500, 9,000 ethnicities. Wow which all would love to have the opportunity to express themselves. So then you have this tension that builds up between, you know, national culture, ethnicity, and then within an organisation, you have organisational culture, that, and you have all these different dimensions of culture that start to edge up against each other. And I think that's where, where research needs to go. So what we're doing is we're starting to structure those databases in the back end to get a, an understanding and to look at the relationship of maybe one language to the next. So if you take one group and you had a Portuguese, Italian, Spanish-speaking person in one group, and then in another group you had Portuguese, 
Japanese, Arabic, and Swahili. Well, I can tell you the diversity is going to be much greater there because diversity, yeah. simply put, means difference. And you, like I said earlier on, you know, these people are going to be very, very different to that other set. Mm. So if we can start to get an understanding through data, and I'm pretty new to data, is we can get an understanding of where has humanity come from? Where are we today? We may begin to understand where we might end up. And one of the things I learned recently, oh, when you asked me, what did you learn recently? I've got to share this. Uh, okay. Yeah, this. <clears throat> In our database of all these languages and speech communities and even dead languages, we have what they call a language isolates. And language isolates are basically, we don't know where these languages came from. Mm. Where did it come from? Because it's not related to another language. So there's two theories. And one theory is that uh, there were other languages, but we don't know what those languages were. So, mm. you know, we've got language bridge B, between language A, a and, yeah. we don't know the bridge. Yeah. Uh, the other theory is, and it's quite plausible, and I, I believe now it's actually been proven, that if, if you've got 10 children, 10 babies, and they were basically self-sufficient and you just gave them food, within a short period of time, they will develop their own language. And now I find that incredible because what does that tell you about the human mind, the blueprint that yeah. we've all been given? I mean, this is, this is extraordinary. So, you know, I think if we begin to understand that better, we can start to unlock, you know, more about the human mind that we don't know. And then how does language start to intersect with other dimensions of diversity? Because at the moment, these disciplines have all been treated on their own. You have yeah. linguists, you have anthropologists looking at, you know, uh, you know, uh, ethno-linguistic cultures. What we're trying to do is now bring them together and understand the relationship because we know there's a relationship between language, national cultures, ethnicities, and even religions. Yeah, that is fantastic, Peter. I mean, the applied linguist in me is, uh, you know, very excited at the moment. You know, just thinking about Noam Chomsky and his work on universal grammar and the idea that we discovered... Um, <laughs> That actually, yeah, we are all we all have a predisposition to develop language and how, and and again, and I suppose at this point in time, from a maybe we should go down this road. That from a linguistic perspective, we are seeing a kind of a cataclysmic loss in the seven thousand languages that exist or so around the world, yeah. with expectations that we'll be at a thousand potentially by uh, the end of the century, if not less. You know what? What is the case for, you know, ensuring? that we don't have linguicide or we don't have um, um, the kind of the disappearing of so many languages. And in Australia, as you know, we had incredible linguistic diversity and still do now from a global perspective. But, you know, there were 250 at least Aboriginal languages, Australian languages here in 1788. And now, you know, many of those are now fully dormant, weren't documented. Um, and because of successive policies, uh, we've lost what would, you know, beautiful, rich language, you know, artifacts of human culture, living artifacts. Um, what's the case to maintain, to, to keep the diversity, to map it, first of all, which is what Diversity Atlas seems to do really effectively, but then also to ensure that we invest and maintain it? Well, every time a language disappears, every time an aspect of culture disappears, and when it's not replaced with 
something of equal value, I believe that humanity is losing something. It's being watered down. Mm. And there's so much wisdom yeah. that's being lost with every single aspect of culture that disappears. Now, I'm not trying to put a case here that we need to um, conserve every aspect of every culture out there because culture is dynamic. Um, for culture to remain vibrant and alive, it needs to be reinventing itself because mm. the environment around us is constantly changing. Yeah. But when we have this cataclysmic loss of languages, which we're about to experience over the next um, 70, 80 years, I don't know what that means for humanity yet. I think it, it's going to mean a lot. Mm. Um, diversity is the essence of humanity. Our greatest brand and our most underutilized brand is our cultural diversity. Oh, wow. And, and, and if, if you think of the great moments in history, yeah, it's given so much to humanity when you bring together diverse perspectives, you know. Knowledge is the diversification of ideas. I mean, I love history and I love going to parts of the world that people haven't been to. You know, I've been to Pakistan four times and one of the reasons they kept on drawing me back to Pakistan is because of our, our Hellenic heritage. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the Greeks spent a lot of time there. There was some thousand Greek cities wow. in Central Asia in the as part of the Greco-Bactrian kingdom. Uh, and the Greeks, when they arrived there, they, they gave up a part of their identity because they believed that humanity could become better by embracing the other. Mm. So if you think in a place like Lahore, in the Museum of Lahore. It's got the very first bilingual coin in the world. On one side, it's Greek, and on one side, it's in Karoshti, the local language. I mean, what does that tell you about uh, embracing the other? Yeah. What does that? I mean, it, it says so much. So, so I think we can learn from history, and, and there's a movement now across the world. I mean, there's this huge interest in the world in the Silk Road because the Silk Road was it was a borderless world where there was a flow of ideas and there was great advances in gastronomy, you know, in music, the advances in music, in arithmetic, geometry, astronomy, literature, and it goes on. And then we had this sort of nationalistic phase that the world went through and we're still in the middle of mm. where borders went up and the flow of ideas wasn't as ubiquitous. But in the last 30 years, we had this massive... Yeah. You know, the ad, we had the advent of the World Wide Web, yep. you know, thanks to Tim Berners-Lee. Mm. And he created this super diverse world, you know, where time and space became compressed and we could communicate with anyone, you know, uh, you know in, within a moment. Mm. So that's really started to, I think, drive um, uh, economic activity across the world. So we've gone through this period of massive economic globalisation yeah. Without globalization of values and ethics. So, this comes back to the work that you and I do, Luca, as uh, educators. Mm. And uh, we've seen a strong correlation, for example, between um, conflict and the rise of social media. So, if you think of 2007, social media exploded, and four years later, we had uh, the Arab Spring. I mean, that was really fueled by social media. Mm. And we're seeing 
people engaging in these cascading conversations that go on and on and on forever. And they've read a chapter out of a book and all of a sudden they're an expert. They're an expert on everything. I mean, my 13-year-old is an expert on almost everything you can imagine. <laughs> uh, and, she told, and she tells me she gets it out of TikTok. Yeah, well, <laughs> I don't even know what TikTok is. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's a great example of, um, of you know, the diversification of ideas, I suppose. And, and I suppose the need as well for the other capabilities like discernment or critical thinking. Yeah. Um, you know, how do we in this world of fluid flowing ideas discern those which are most valid and most necessary for us to be able to create a better world? Uh, and I mean, clearly, I think you and I would agree around the, some of the capabilities that need to be centralized in all education systems. Mm -hmm you know, cult, intercultural capability um, alongside critical thinking, um, mm. you know, because we can do all these different things and yet fake news, uh, as the Centre for Humane Technology continues to say, really spreads five times faster than true news. And it does. It and and I've, been, I've been a victim of fake news and I, and I feel totally embarrassed. I'm, I try to be as careful as possible now when I read something that I go off and do maybe a secondary check or just... You, you just don't participate mm. because what social media has allowed us to do is become all experts and yeah. all voice and opinion. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's a, it's a remarkable moment in time. I'd love you to talk from your vantage point around, around this kind of the model of schooling, you know, because you've taken us on a quite, you know, a quite articulate view of history of how we've got to this moment. You know, if we, if we go into the future, um, you know, and of course, the, the thesis of this whole podcast is really that the, we don't know what the future will be, but it'll be one filled with learning. It'll be a learning future. What do you think in 10 years or so, if we're having the same conversation, what do you think schools could be? What's, what, you know, where are they now? And how do, we, how do we all act in whatever way it is, if we're embedded in a school, if we're a parent, if we're an entrepreneur or innovator, policymaker, whatever the role is that we play, you know, how can we contribute to that particular future? Uh, 10 years is a very short period and what I'd ideally like to see is not going to happen because, you know, we, we have a workforce of tens and tens of thousands of teachers just in Australia alone. Yeah. So how do you create a systemic change to begin to get teachers to adopt a different approach? 10 years is not enough. I think what we need to be working on, Luca, and I've thought about this, is how do we stay, start to create these malleable structures that allow people to adapt to this ever-increasing uh, environment that we're finding our way in? Mm. And, you know, the, the amount of decisions that you and I need to make on a daily basis, our grandparents probably didn't need to make or your great-grandparents didn't need to make in a lifetime. Mm. So how do we create this nimbleness? And, yes, critical thinking is, uh, uh, is going to be a really important driver. But I think the future in education is going to lie in this multi-prong approach. Yeah. It's, going to have to, uh, it's going to have to include, you know, ed tech. Mm. But ed tech doesn't suit every kid. And I noticed that with one of my children. They could not sit in front of a computer during the lockdown. It didn't work for them at all. Yeah. Another child of mine was completely okay. They got mm. it. Mm. And, and that's because every, every human being is different. Yeah. 
And nothing is ever going to replace the power of doing, learning through doing. That's my opinion. You know, I can show you how to ride a bike. You can watch me. You can listen to the instructions. Yeah. But there's not going to be anything like you getting on that bike and you're learning because you're going to learn so much quicker. Mm. Yeah, being on in, on the court as opposed to in so, the stands. So yeah. I think how do we start to start to to recognise where where our students are coming from, where our kids are, and allow for a you know a diverse approach of or, or diverse way of being able to teach yeah. based on you know the style that the kid needs to learn in. That's great. I mean, if we could make the same point, I suppose, about, about workforces. Um, the, for example, and so t- take us through the work that you're doing at the moment with Diversity Atlas because, you know, a diverse organization also means that the diversification of ideas will be expanded. And of course, as we move into kind of the knowledge economy slash the creation or adaption economy, uh, it's being able to innovate and to articulate new ideas and to execute them and test them and fail. And diversity seems to be a really big part of doing that well. So what, what would you say about the, the emerging future of the workforce around diversity itself? Because, you know, we have some really amazing, uh, you know, advocates and activists out there that are pushing diversity, equity, inclusion. And uh, it seems to be slow, but it's changing slowly. Uh, what, what is it about the organization when it's when it kind of is is made up of a greater diversity be it ethnolinguistic be it gender um, be it sexuality whatever the kind of identity markers may be uh, that makes it that really does unlock that the potential of the human beings that work in that organization well I mean there's been there's been countless studies that have been done on this Luca and what those studies have highlighted is that if you don't have a diverse team and you have a team just of experts, the experts get locked into this, almost this groupthink and this silo, and they can't transverse out of that silo. Right. And we've found with our organisation, whenever we want to come up with something new, even a new creative idea in our earlier days when we were putting on our huge events and, you know, I produced nine Australia Day concerts for the State Government of Victoria here, okay. quite often it was the person who we least expected to contribute came up with something really innovative. Nice. Uh, you know, our organisation developed the winning slogan, Diversified We Grow, for a UN campaign many years ago. And I brought the whole team together. And I said, guys, I want to come up with a slogan. I want to come up with a winning slogan. And I know that our organisation is already doing this. We need to capture what we do. Yeah. And people were, people were throwing words around, words around, words around. And there was an intern from France who was with us. And she could barely speak English. And she said the words, Diversity We Grow. Now, I'm not too sure even if she knew what she meant by that. And I thought, that's it. Diversified, we grow. That captures who we are. So when I I thought of that term and we embraced that term, I wasn't just thinking of, you know, uh, building socially cohesive and peaceful communities. I was thinking of, uh, you think, of the new medical system we have today. Mm. And that came about as a convergence of Arabic, Hellenic and Hindu thought. I was thinking of, thinking of the bionic eye. You know, who would have thought a bionic eye would have been possible 40 years ago? Yeah. I mean, that came about because of uh, this convergence of many different disciplines coming together. Yeah, great. To create something completely new. 
And now we have this early form of a black and white eye. I mean, this is extraordinary. Yeah. Um, you know, think of the contribution that First Nations communities have been able to make towards the environment. Mm. What the contribution they've made towards, you know, uh, medicine. So if you want to sit there all day long and stay within your little, you know, room and not get out there and not experience the world, mm. well, your world's going to become very monotonous. And what... Um, uh, what, so what science also tells us and what nature tells us is there's the law of requisite variety, which is one of the principles of thermodynamics, which states, that, which states that any system, if it's not as equally as varied as the environment it's operating in, will eventually disappear. So when we think of oh, wow. uh, trying to make organisations more diverse, we're not only thinking about innovation, but we're starting to think of what are your opportunities what are your gaps and how you might be able to become more representative of the workforce, uh, of the communities uh, that you're delivering uh, uh, products and services to? Yeah. Oh, Peter, that's so brilliant. I could talk to you for another hour at least, you know, kind of sit here all day, like, you know, exploring diversity and culture, language, etc. cetera. Um, it's really interesting work and it's, it's clearly deeply needed for the for the reasons that you outlined at the beginning of our uh of our recording today um yeah so so coming back to diversity atlas the reason why we developed the tool was because we noticed there wasn't a, a tool out there that took a scientific approach to measuring diversity and everyone out there was talking about inclusion and representation right. and equity but how do you develop an inclusive strategy a representative strategy and that a, a strategy around equity if you don't have the data. Yeah, sure. You're just swimming in the dark. But there's, there, there's challenges because in some parts of the world, and we're now working with a multinational uh, company, mm. uh, the largest tech company in the world, where we've started di- mapping the diversity in different parts of the world. And in some parts of the world, you can't ask certain questions. Mm. Why? Because there are no laws in place to protect people from being discriminated against. Oh, so wow. we're also hoping that the tool starts to, to drive the conversation yeah. and get the conversation happening and become this global standard for how we start to understand who we are as organisations and communities. And we know there's a strong representation between peace and communities, yeah. uh, peace and, uh, uh, you know, uh, peace and, uh, um, you know, uh, yeah, and organisations, uh, you know, make up. Yeah. Uh, if you think of what COVID has done in the last uh, 13, 14 months, it's really highlighted that blanket approaches have a disproportionate impact on communities yeah. and individuals. Mm. Wow, Peter. So again, so I'm kind of just a bit struck because I had so many questions I want to ask you, but I'd love you to leave us um, with a take-home message from everything we've covered, you know, around conflict and peace education, you know, the role of intercultural understanding, different capabilities in schools, uh, you know, the work of Diversity Atlas and how the data is critical, um, you know, the, the, why we should pay attention to history and, and acknowledge diversity in all its forms. What do you want to leave us with from all the, all the kind of domains that we've covered in our conversation today? Yeah, I am a strong believer in once connected, always connected. Be the best you can be. And think about what you might be able to do today 
to understand the other better. Mm. Yeah, it really is. It's only humanity that's on the line, I reckon. Peter, thank you so much for joining us for the Learning Future podcast. <laughs> thank you, today. Luca. This has been fantastic. I've been pleasure. Been interviewed by you. You have the great work. Thanks for listening to the Learning Future podcast. To find out more about our work, drop into thelearningfuture.com and follow us at Learning Future on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Here's to building a world of thriving learners together.